0: Hi, this is Keith Kefchen, and you're listening to Dollars and Drivers, a podcast that allows leaders and outlets to discuss what drives them and their distinct way of succeeding in life and business. Today's conversation is with Keith Klein, the President and CEO of CorePoint Lodging. Recently sold the business to Highgate and Cerberus. He talks about the challenges through COVID of using their balance sheet Resetting cost structures, and then some personal anecdotes about making yourself uncomfortable. I think they've done a great job of positioning the company for sale and look forward to a nice conversation again with Keith Klein. Keith, how are you? There he is. How are you? I'm all right. Business is significantly off, but that I guess is to be expected. We're serving a couple of industries that have been entirely decimated.
1: <laughs> I think decimated is probably one of the more understated things that you've said so far. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you I, mean, I was hotels... talking to a guy this morning in the cruise line industry. And oh. man, every time I think I've got a bad, I talk to my buddies in cruise and it is just, wow.
0: We do a little bit in cruise, uh, Royal Caribbean, NCL, their clients, but it, it is a very small industry in general, from, you know, the number of players. Uh, So you do business with those two and Cunard and probably everyone else are off limits. Right. Uh, And, but hotel has been decent in that, you know, the work that we've been getting is a lot of private equity, investors, you know, Mm -hmm. people that are making moves and doing things, scaling up maybe for what they think is going to be an opportunity to buy low. Right, And the restaurant industry, besides a couple of the quick serve players, mm-hmm. gosh, I, I feel terrible for, you yeah. know, you're doing white tablecloth or, you know, any kind of, you know, fine dining. It's just horrible. Agreed.
1: Now yeah. we're, we're, we're muddling through, obviously, you know, we've, we've, we put all of our stuff out there, obviously we're public, so we can talk a lot about what's going on in our business. And, you know, we started at least at the yeah. property level, you know, breaking even, uh, in June, which is good. Now we're heading into slow season. So now it's a bit of a challenge, but, um, you know, at least, at least breaking even
0: at the property level, uh, during peak season was a good thing. I mean, is this traditionally a slow season for, yes. Okay. Yeah, and so that, for
1: us, you know, it Q2 and Q3 is peak, right? Q4 and Q1, much slower. And then, you know, and with the absence of strong business travel, yeah, right? Because uh, right. typically, like, the month of October would be conventions, right? right? There weren't any conventions. Um, you know, as you go into leisure travel around holidays, much less leisure travel. Um, you know, we have a lot of co-located hotels near sporting facilities, NFL and college. Wow. Well, guess what? Yeah. Right. <laughs> no customers allowed. No, it's no customers allowed. So it's been uh, it's been a little bit interesting. But we're you know you get to learn some new skills when you go through something like this.
0: Yeah. Maybe before we get into uh, the broader questions, uh, I appreciate that update. But I mean, what are the couple of major things that were front and center on your plate when when all of this hit? You know, thinking back to March, April. Well, yeah. and then maybe a, a thing or two that surprised you about all of yeah,
1: this yeah so i mean so so you know march going into april it's immediately about cash preservation okay. right yeah it's, it's strengthening your balance sheet uh, like many public companies we drew down our revolver out of out of an abundance of caution to get cash in our balance sheet not knowing in march what was going to happen in april And then once April hit, we were thankful that we had taken those precautions, but it's all about the balance sheet, getting any kind of, any kind of waivers in place on your debt, extending maturities, if at all possible. In our case, we've got CMBS debt and a revolver working with all those constituencies to make sure that we're on solid footing. And then it's about preserving, preserving cash. Uh, So it's, it's working with your brand. In our case, we're a REIT. So we're having to work with Wyndham and the operating arm of Wyndham to reduce costs better manage labor. Um, and at, at, on, on the back end of all this, you know, we found ourselves in a position where, like many hotel owners today, is you're able to kind of reset your cost structure to match the current business environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And that means to make it as very, very, uh, vary those expenses as much as you can with occupancy. And uh, we were able to do that very quickly.
0: But, but yeah. that, that's at the unit level. I mean, as a REIT, you level. don't have a lot of employees typically, right?
1: No, so it's you know thirty employees here at corporate, and then thousands of employees out in the field that work for Wyndham. Um, but you know we did have to put furloughs in place—not we, but Wyndham—they're our third-party manager. Right. So you know a lot of employees were furloughed um, around housekeeping primarily because there was just no demand. But it's all about controlling costs, and I think we moved quickly uh, on the balance sheet, and then moved quickly on cost containment to at least uh, you know preserve the the strength of the cast position of the business. Um, So that was kind of job one Mm -hmm. uh, out of the gate when this thing started, you know, some things that surprised me, you know, honestly, to the good, I was pleasantly surprised given the media, the number of cases, just the overall perception of this pandemic. I was surprised how many people still traveled for leisure during the summer, right? If you had hotels that were co-located by interstates, you were in uh, drive-through or drive-to destinations. And like our business, you know, we've got a deep history with these hotels supporting general infrastructure across the country. So it's electricians, it's tradesmen, it's transportation, it's construction, guys in white trucks kind of keeping keeping America going. They continued to move around the country this summer. Americans and, will be Americans, right? <laughs> right, they continued to move around. And uh, although it was still... Obviously, as, as people could see in our public reporting, down versus the prior year, um, you know, we did our best to leverage the business that was there to try to fill the hotels. And I was pleasantly
0: surprised at the activity around leisure travel this summer. What do you think, as a public company, what do you think's driving uh, the public markets? I mean, if you would have asked me again in late March, early April, that we would have bounced back to 30000 on the New York Stock Exchange. I would have yeah. said, you know, you're you're smoking. But what's your perception of what's driving interest in the public markets right now?
1: Well, it certainly isn't earnings, right? Uh, it, it, exactly. I mean, so it's not earnings. Uh, I, I think I think early on the level of activity and buying was obviously, you know, people cutting their losses and taking task positions, as well as people finding attractive entry points into the mm-hmm. market. If I look at it now, there are certain verticals that I, I want to say are relatively unaffected by what's happening. I talked to friends of mine in other industries and, you know, they talk about beating their 19 numbers yeah. in 2020 because they just happen to be in that sweet spot. You know, let's say that you're in a public storage business. Guess what? People are still storing stuff. Right? And, I mean, and they're paying. And they're paying, right? right. So, yeah. um, you know, or you're in a, in a, in a consumer products company. Um, you know, let's say you sell peanut butter and jelly. Well, guess what? There's a bunch of guys like you and me that for much of the year were at home uh, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because we were in the house, right? Yeah, so, fair so, enough. You know, so it's so it's interesting. Those continue to move. Um, certainly in the real estate sector and hotels specifically, you know, there's just so much caution, right, around how long the recovery curve could be that you're going to see, you know, valuations likely be suppressed for some period of time. And you know, you could have anybody uh, on here talking about public market valuations and comparisons to NAV, and it's it's pretty clear that there's a lot of very attractive. Uh, pricing out there in the market today, but certainly well above where the low was. Yeah. I mean, the shock the system took early on was uh, was impressive.
0: Yeah, I have a client in Penn National. We had placed their CFO just before this it all happened, and I, I, I think that they paid us, and they were like, "Ooh, can we can we have that check back?" You know, <laughs> we have it. Uh, but, but but since then, I mean, they've been up eight hundred percent. It's amazing. And and you go, well, wait a minute. Most of their bricks and mortar were closed. They obviously did did a deal uh, with Barstool. Uh, right, so they're right. doing a, a lot of online and it seems like a lot of young retail investors seem to be intrigued by what they're doing. So again, you're right, it, it seems to be either haves and and some have nots, but let, let's jump to some of my intended questions. You know yeah. the podcast is, is dollars and drivers. It's about success and leadership and what's driving you and, and your company. And, you know, if, if you could think back, I mean, what are those driving factors that you think made you personally a success and what's driving your business today and its success?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, as with many things in life, uh, I believe the people that you surround yourself with can really have a profound impact on on who you become and Honestly, I was very fortunate to have you know, you know everything from extremely supportive parents and mentors in my personal and professional life, and, and had a lot of people that encouraged me to to not be afraid to get outside of my comfort zone. I mean, I guess that's a long way of describing a scenario early on where I just kept pushing myself to grow and learn, uh, mm-hmm. always making myself uncomfortable, and um, having a, a safe place to test out some of these skills. When I was younger, I certainly wasn't afraid of of change. So as I look at my Kind of my personal and professional motivation and success. I think a lot of it was I, I grew up and surrounded myself with the right kind of people so that when an opportunity came my way, um, I could take action and feel confident uh, taking action on an opportunity when it was presented. So as I think about that personal maturation, right, early in my career, like a lot of us, I, I spent a lot of my time focusing on getting the right kind of tools in my toolkit so I could continue to advance in the corporate environment. Eventually it became about you know, leadership and and trying to pay it forward in some sense. And honestly, today, as I look at the personal side of the question, you know, my motivation today is about trying to make a lasting impact on something, right? Um, Build something that can have some sustainability, you know, long after I'm gone. So as I I think about how I've kind of parlayed that into, you know, my business, right? Obviously, you know, running a REIT today is very different than running the C-Corp that I ran at La Quinta. Um, But a lot of the principles certainly exist. If I look at the business today, you know, we're driven by metrics and we're driven by things like creating shareholder value. But I I strongly believe that, you know, the way that you put yourself in a position to drive that kind of value is, is trying to build the right kind of environment, right? just like, just like growing up and being surrounded by a lot of great people that help make you who you are for me, success in business is once again, being surrounded by a lot of great people. Mm-hmm. Um, driving a, a culture and an operating environment based on trust. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, years ago I read you know Pat Lencioni's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, right? Which talks about how trust ultimately sure. drives results. And I'm I'm bought in. So I, I've always tried to display some of the things from that book and my organizations about building an open environment, right? Where people are are free to share ideas, you know, no fear of conflict. And you know, that kind of an environment gets the best ideas on the table getting the best ideas generally drives alignment because people are sharing their thoughts alignment drives accountability and accountability you know should drive results in an organization
0: yeah think i mean people don't know this about you but I do because we've mm-hmm. chatted over the years you're not a quote unquote hotelie or a hotel person right. you've come right. from other environments you were even potentially a professional musician lot more hair back then. Yeah, right. right. Uh, the mullet of, of uh, <laughs> the 80s. Do you think that that has brought you a different perspective than people who've grown up in our industry? Or is it, you know, a, a net, you know, zero? I think, I think it
1: does, um, you know, afford me the opportunity to bring a different perspective, right? Because I've been in consumer packaged goods i've been in uh, transportation and logistics i spent most of my career in fashion retailing right multi unit specialty retailing before i came into the hospitality business and i think most of all the experience in in fashion retailing is is what was most translatable uh, into what i'm doing you know today in the hotel business because it's all about really? curating an experience and building customer loyalty and giving people you know a reason to come into your facility like in the fashion business life was all about trying to curate the right kind of assortment and create the right kind of emotional connection to a brand. So I could force you right. to go buy something you didn't even want or need. Maybe you didn't know you needed it here. Here it's about building an affinity for, for an experience in a, in a lodging organization. And a lot of those things are, are transferable, but still different. Right. And I noticed that right. when I first came into the industry that, you know, I thought about the customer just a little bit different. Uh, than we had been thinking about it. Um, but all the concepts transferred, I think, pretty smoothly.
0: Do you believe that in a playbook, we've been talking to uh, to people throughout these meetings, mm-hmm. Dr. Jim and I are writing a second book mm-hmm. called The Way rather than your why and your mission statement. I think all of that we discussed in the first book, but now it's down in the trenches. It seems like the, the great Organizations, sports teams have mm-hmm. a real playbook. I uh, think about the Patriots. You know, they call it the Patriot Way. They don't, but other people do. Is, is there a, a La Quinta way? Is there a Keith Klein way of doing business?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. So, obviously, you know, when I joined La Quinta many years ago before the sale to Wyndham, I mean, there absolutely was a La Quinta way of doing business. It was built around delivering that those expectations directly to your your customer to deliver on the experience that they're looking for. At La Quinta, it was all about listening to the customer and understanding what motivates them to put you in the consideration set. And this may or may not be true today because obviously La Quinta is part of a larger portfolio of brands that has a lot of different people staying in the hotels now, which is great, right? The cross-pollinization part is wonderful. Um, but when we were you know, little old, kind of mighty La Quinta, it was our customers wanted three things. They wanted to be assured, that they made the right decision when they pulled in so things like the parking lot the exterior the landscape and the lighting was all important and and assured that they made the right decision right so that front desk experience is really mm-hmm. important they wanted to be settled into their room so it affected how we marketed in the room making it the room the guest space not our space or not our tool to to market and advertise nothing on the bed uh, no no papers to move out of the way but most of all you know guests told us they were optimistic and that feeling of optimism drove the overall marketing campaign and the tagline wake up on the bright side so the brand tried to own the notion of optimism so you know that was the La Quinta way but how i would parlay that into maybe how i view business i've always thought that it's been critically important to understand what drives the economic model i mean i can go all the way back to my days at fedex where the design around the strategy was building block of the machine right how do you make money and what are the driving forces in your business that tell you what to do, and many times, more importantly, tell you what not to do, right? How do you make decisions? And you know, I looked at La Quinta, and La Quinta was really everything from hospitality. It was a, a REIT, but not a REIT, because we were a C Corp. It was a management company, and it was a, an asset-like brand. And that kind of drove the strategy to separate the business because half the business had a driving force of selling a product and service, which is a brand and management business, The other half of the business was essentially capacity utilization, right? A REIT is a lot like a print shop. How do I optimize my throughput to maximize the ROI and the capex I've deployed? So that kind of drove the decision in the early days to spin out the real estate and put the brand in the hands of an asset light brand business. And they can make all the right brand decisions and then put the assets in the right structure, i.e. a REIT. um, And people, you know, people, my team can make the right decisions around How to run the assets. So, the thing that's been consistent in my career for a very long time is kind of the strategic process and trying to align uh, what drives the economic model with how you make decisions about what strategies you pursue and what
0: strategies you don't pursue. Got it. How do you view competition? How do you use Mm -hmm. information that you gain from competition? But just look at the concept of competition. How do you approach that? You obviously are in a very competitive business. Yeah, I embrace
1: it because I think a highly competitive environment ultimately will drive evolution and change in an industry because you get all the right minds thinking about what's that next evolution of the guest experience or hotel prototype or guest amenity or technology that can be employed out there. So I've always thought about competition. You look inward to think about competition, then look externally, right? So kind of in the thought process around designing what you do, I've always thought it's been interesting to try to develop the stealth competitor. So so if I understand who I am and what I'm trying to accomplish and the economic model that I've got to drive results in my business, my North Star, is there somebody out there that doesn't exist yet that would be the antithesis of everything that I'm not good at, such that I become irrelevant. And it's interesting in the hotel business, I would say in fashion retailing, that process moves much faster. Measured in weeks and months in terms of movement, the one thing I've generally found over the past eight years in this industry is that the cycles are infinitely longer. It's measured in years in terms of change occurring. What did you
0: think when you know something like Airbnb popped up? I remember hearing about it early on, and college kids sleeping on other college kids' couches for a couple of bucks. (laughs) I mean. Did you go aha? That's a this competitive issue front and center, or
1: yeah, I viewed it as something that you know, in in a level competitive playing field. So if we're all going to behave like hotel companies, then let's all act like hotel companies, right, and make it all safe for the consumer, focus on the guest, all those things we've been talking about for years. But the notion of Airbnb, I thought, you know, I embraced it from a competitive standpoint because if someone uh, adopts the new vehicle, and customers certainly adopted the new vehicle, then running a traditional hotel, you've got to look at that and try to learn from it. So what is it about that experience that is choosing, is forcing people to choose that potentially uh, over your facility? And once again, this is that notion of you know a new business or higher level of competition uh, should drive change and should allow the industry to evolve. And I think because of changing customer preferences and things like Airbnb and multitudes, of other things that are clamoring for distribution. I think hotel companies have gotten a lot better at trying to customize guest experiences and cater to what people are looking for. It's interesting as I look at my hotels and people would ask me all the time, do you feel like Airbnb is a threat to you? And here's always been my view. In in the select service market, where I'm not, I'm not offering a kitchen or any kind of cooking facility, and the vast majority of Airbnb stayers in some st- are looking for access to things like that. So I might not even be in the consideration set as a competitor. But certainly as I look at a compression event, let's take South by Southwest, um, if and when it ever happens again in Austin, Texas, right? Um, I view it this way. The city will still sell out, but because of things like Airbnb, it will sell out at just a net lower rate because there's just a little more supply in the market.
0: But I think from any competitor, you can always learn. Got it. You're CEO of a publicly traded company. There's probably for a decade now CEO pay, and there's been a lot of hubbub, pay ratios now, and Dodd Frank. What are your general feelings about executive pay in the public markets? One, and, and two, how do you put a dollar value on the contribution of people that work for you?
1: I mean, as I look at compensation structures, obviously in the public market, it's a a pretty prescribed process, right? You've got compensation consultants that work for the board of directors for the comp committee that come in and they take a look at you, your peers, your company, the size and complexity of your organization, the market path, the enterprise value, the industry that you compete in. And that kind of puts a a sandbox around um, not only the aggregate amount of compensation you should receive, but, but how it's structured and how it's incented. And obviously being a named officer in a public company your compensation structure is going to be highly, highly aligned towards the creation of shareholder value. And and it should be aligned that way. A big chunk of it should be variable. And a big chunk of mine has always been variable. And, you know, being aligned with shareholder value creation is a powerful motivation, right? When they win, you win. And Mm -hmm. having that alignment in the C-suite is important. So I think at the NEO level, there's a prescribed process to get it right and to monitor it. As you look at You know, the rest of the organization, you know, my belief has always been that the closer somebody is in an organization to driving value, the more aligned with that value creation they should be. So once again, look at similar positions across the industry, look at people's background um, across the industry. But then more importantly, if if they're kind of close to the economic model, then a larger percentage of that person's compensation should be tied to driving value and tied to what shareholders receive.
0: What, if anything, is, is, is COVID's impact on those kind of metric-driven yeah. incentive programs? I know a yeah. lot of our clients are wrestling with, what do we do? People probably have been working even harder this year. Right. And maybe the results have obviously deteriorated. Yeah, don't match right. that. Sure. So yeah. what have you been thinking about relative well, yeah, to that so issue? That,
1: that question is, is, is right on point. Right. If you think when this pandemic hit, it was generally aligned with most December 31st fiscal year end filers creating their comp plans for the next year. And you can see in a lot of the public filings, people wrote in specific language around COVID-19 and pandemic disruption to give uh, compensation committees some flexibility. And I think that flexibility is important. Here's my example. We talked a little bit ago about the priorities of the business when this thing hit. And, and, and we're we're compensated like any other REIT. It's about generating bottom line results. It's about total shareholder return, or not total, but relative relative shareholder return. And the duties of my team immediately shifted towards cash preservation in the balance sheet. That's not in the compensation plan, right? That's not that's not one of the things we're bonusing on. So I think I think the conversation that's happening in boardrooms across the country right now is how do we use some of that flexibility that's built in to try to align compensation with effort, you know, even if people are doing things that didn't exactly equate to the bonus metrics, but they certainly helped to, um, I don't wanna say save the company, but protect the balance sheet and make sure the company navigated through this in an effective way. Now, my business, obviously those are conversations for our compensation committee, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if many companies across the country right now Um, that these types of conversations aren't happening to make sure that that those people that need recognized, you find a way to recognize them.
0: Kind of moving on, you know, one of the things that Dr. Jim and I found in in talking to people during writing the first book was the ability to adapt, you know, a willingness to adapt. Can you talk about how you adapt? I mean, this if COVID's taught, I think, any of us is that what used to work might not work in the future yeah. and you, you have to be adaptable or you're potentially in big trouble. But yeah. can you talk about, you know, the, the concept of adaptation and how you and your team potentially do that?
1: I mean, so, so it's interesting as you know, my lead in comments about not having any fear of change from yeah. the time I was young, it makes it easy for me to adapt. And okay. In fact, uh, I'm typically the happiest if, if I'm in an environment that has a lot of activity and potential things that could change, because I, I like the fluidity of being able to, you know, react. Some things don't ever change, like longer-term strategies or longer to move off the needle. Um, but it, it's interesting. I've been very impressed with uh, with my team in particular on how quickly we all just, you know, student body left, and it was the balance sheet cost containment, working with our third-party manager on preserving. Um, a target right we we laid out the metrics for the target of what break even looks like at the property level and said how do we get all of our metrics into this box to deliver the outcome and I was pretty impressed with how quickly the entire organization um, changed their focus and put that as what matters most in the short
0: term you mentioned earlier on about being around great people maybe some yeah. mentors that have helped you how do you seek advice today as kind of the top leader in an organization. Where do you go when you're kind of at the top?
1: You know, it's interesting, right? Um, There's always that saying, hey, it's lonely at the top. There's a reason why they say that, right? That's Um, why our
0: our first book was Loneliness of
1: Leadership, because we found the same thing. Sometimes it is a very lonely place to be. But what you need around you is, for me, it's been interesting. I I found a balance of non-industry peers or friends that I've known for decades is a great North star. So I've got friends in my life that I've literally known for 40 years, since Mm -hmm. I was 10 years old, that know everything about me, know my entire history, know all the different struggles, achievements, et cetera, that have gone on in my life. So when I introduce a new topic to them or something I'm working through, they have the benefit of 40 years of knowledge on how I've behaved in the past to give me advice. So I think it's important to have a couple of those. And I do, I've got a, a couple of people, one that's completely a personal friendship, non-business at all, and the other that is someone that I've known for most of my adult life that has rose through various ranks in an organization, is now retired and has an enormous perspective and history. But then I also look to industry leaders and people that I respect. And I've been very fortunate to have great board members at La Quinta and, and now at CorePoint that I've found to be wonderful sounding boards. Um, and then you come across people in your career that may be in other industries but you respect the way they lead, I will seek them out for advice as well. I'm also, had have been a member for quite some time of an organization called you know, World 50 that is a curated group of, of CEOs from various industries that are put into cohorts and groups based on commonalities. And I've, I've been in one for many years where we all had the common thread of private equity ownership in some form okay. or fashion. So I've met some amazing CEOs from industries and locations around the globe that are an instant network, that I can talk to people, use that entire group as a sounding board if something comes up and uh, look for advice and counsel. I'm I'm a big believer in, you know, you're never alone when it comes to a challenge. There's always someone who's been through it. So either read about it in a book and get the benefit of someone else's life or find someone that's gone through it and see if they'll talk to you.
0: Yeah, what we did find about loneliness is sometimes that's self-inflicted. I mean, it can be a lonely place, uh, especially if you let it be. The opposite is true. If you bring people and let people in, you don't necessarily have to be. Uh, my, my last question: A lot of people, uh, myself included, think in sports analogies, and you hear about, you know, the Laker dynasty, the Celtics dynasty, the Patriots dynasty, the All Blacks rugby team. Right. What do you think it takes to be a dynasty? What What have they done differently? Those kinds of organizations that they've had such sustained success you
1: know it's interesting for me dynasty right it's it's a it's a big word yes <laughs> right it is um, yeah <laughs> you know it's a big word it's a big word for me dynasty is about building something that leaves an impact so i guess if if i was to look inward and say for me creating a dynasty what would that mean you know if i am creating something that when i'm dead and gone I'm left behind a positive impact that lets people know that i was here and made a difference That would be a dynasty, right, to me. So when I look at these sports organizations, and it is is interesting because it's like a small box that you can use as examples, but I think commonality, and I don't know this to be true, but it feels like it, is, you know, they're typically led by someone that found something they love to do, they just love it, and they figured out how to make money at it, and they poured their entire life into it such that it never felt like work, and then surrounded themselves with people that know how to lead right? There's a reason why in sports, many of the most successful sports franchises out there have had very few coaches, very few quarterbacks, very few issues with personnel. And it all comes down to how ownership and leadership sets the right tone in the organization and what they'll tolerate. And then you have other organizations that look like science fair projects,
0: right? Yeah. I, one's in our backyard. I, I keep comparing the Jets, you know, to the to the Patriots and you just go, Salary cap, same amount of people, same goals, right. same right. supposed value set. We win championships. It's all about winning, and exactly. then you see that one's a perennial loser and the other's a perennial winner, and you, it, it is a head scratcher. And it maybe is. it's maybe it's as simple as,
1: but but it's culture too, right? I mean, you look at it yeah. in college sports, and it you know I'm not going to protect the innocent, but there are there are certain college programs that bring in four and five star recruits year after year after year and never compete because they've got a bad culture and there's no accountability and they don't know how to build team trust. At the end of the day, it all comes down to the culture and environment that an organization sets up. But to me, that the, the notion of a dynasty seems to always start with someone that has a life's passion that they simply figured out how to make money at. And then they can focus on all those soft things to keep it moving forward, as opposed
0: to trying to figure out how to make money maybe one more quick question you got a son daughter graduating from a hospitality program yeah in the middle of a pandemic what kind of advice would you give that child
1: my my advice on that would be to look past the pandemic right the things that are important about hospitality will be important to hospitality over the long term focus on getting the right tools being around the right people getting the right mentorship and the pandemic will pass, but the skills that you obtain, you can take with you the rest of your career.
0: We'll end on that. I really appreciate you taking the time. Take care and thanks. So thanks, Keith. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Dollars and Drivers. Until next time, this is Keith Kefchen signing off.